If you travel around the city, uh, you'll often pass by the touristy places and see an image like this. It's almost inevitable you'll come across the people who have set up their well-worn and weathered hand-painted signs, uh, sharing over a small portable speaker about their cause. Occasionally, you'll, you'll see a few bystanders maybe engage and listen, but mostly, you'll just notice tourists are just looking for a way to take their selfies without including pictures like these in the background. Other times, you'll see, uh, when I pass by like places like the White House or Lafayette Square, you'll see some well-dressed people standing beside some prim and proper stands with some of their religious literature beside them. And often, though, there's no one really talking to them except they're talking amongst themselves. Uh, last week, I passed by and, and I saw a Christian standing there reading scripture and preaching a fiery sermon to an audience of none. And I'll think about this. I'll go, wow, do, do people really think that their message is heard here? Do you think they think they're making a difference? You know, America is a land of free speech, right? It's embedded in our Constitution, in the First Amendment, and that's a gift. But as these dem examples demonstrate, how freely you speak your message, and even how true your message might be, it doesn't make a difference if people can't relate or if people don't listen. For most, it's just noise to ignore. You're really seen as something as having nothing to offer. So what is it that Jesus' followers have to offer? How to live a nice, respectable life? How to be a good citizen? Have the right motivation for working for vulnerable and marginalized people in our society? Or maybe it, the Christian faith offers us a lifestyle of reconciliation and personal wellness. But I think if you're really honest with yourself, you don't really need Jesus to live out any of these values. So what is it that Jesus offers? For those of us who have come to know Jesus, we have a message of utmost importance to share for the world. It's a message of hope, a message of love, of transformation, and of renewal. It's a message of a restored relationship with the living God and a restored relationship with ourselves and the world around us through Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the good news. It's the Greek word for, the, uh, it's Greek, gospel is the Greek word for good news. But many of us fail to share this good news effectively in a way that's relevant for others because we're not sharing in a way that's understandable and relatable to the world around us. It's not scratching an itch that people actually have. So in today's text, we're going to look at how Paul approached this audience that held significantly different uh, values and the adjustments he made in his message for that context. Through his, though his hearers at first considered his message to be lowbrow and irrelevant, Paul's interaction in the, at the marketplace and before the council in Athens demonstrates how to leverage gospel capital effectively. Those who have gospel capital see, speak, and share. See, speak, and share. So what is capital? Traditionally, it comes from the finance world, and capital is this financial or material assets that you have to use for spending or investing. So what's gospel capital? It's looking at the assets that we have for investing and spending, not for our material or spiritual wealth, but for the spiritual flourishing around us. So Paul, he walks into the city of Athens with this wealth of knowledge about Jesus, and when he shows up typically in a city, if you're reading through the, uh, the, the book of Acts, 
he'll typically spend time in the Jewish synagogue first to, to preach this message of Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews and to the world. But in this scene, Paul goes one step further. He doesn't just spend time in the Jewish synagogue. He, we're told in verse 16 that he sees the city is full of idols, which dist uh, distresses him. Athens was a city of beauty and art and culture. It had a stadium. It had a large theater called an Odeon, which was a two-story concert theater that seated a thousand people. But the city's most prominent uh, feature were its temples. You'll see a picture of it up here. To Athena, there was a temple to Athena called the Parthenon. That's the famous image that we, uh, you know, build models of in elementary school. The Erechtheion, which is dedicated to multiple deities. There's a temple to the goddess Roma and a temple to the emperor Augustus, the top of the Acropolis overlooking the city. For Paul, the abundance of temples and figures of metal and stone disturbed him, not because of just their mere existence, but because they pointed to this deep longing for meaning and for significance and for the divine that was expressed in the people of Athens. He saw their deep longings for significance, but they were misplaced in these gods and hopes that would not last because they not, were not ultimately rooted in the living God. That's what disturbs him. So D.C. is a unique city with prominent monuments as well. You know what I'm talking about, right? We have Nat Stadium, Audi Field, RFK, now, those are modern monuments where people gather to worship, right? But we have also classic monuments, like Lincoln Memorial, the White House, U.S. Capitol Building, Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument. These modern and also these classic monuments embody an ideal and a significant story that we want to remember that shapes the story we tell about ourselves and about our nation. What do these monuments say about this nation, what this nation tells itself, and what its desires are. Maybe their desires for independence, for liberty, for freedom, for justice. We can all recall, you probably remember the words of Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address when he talks about this nation and this government is what? Of the people, by the people, and for the people. But do you know what completes that sentence? He says, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. You know what that is? That's a longing. That's worship. That's longing for significance, for permanence, for your efforts and for the efforts of your ancestors and predecessors to be recognized by all of creation for all of eternity. But it's a longing that cannot be fulfilled through human endeavor. Only one being is eternal. And only this one being in the universe makes it possible for others to enjoy the same. Yet what Paul sees here disturbs him, doesn't cause him to withdraw from the Athenians. He's not distressed by their confusion and folly. He's not trying to withdraw and hunker down into the Jewish synagogues. Instead, he is moved with empathy. He moves towards them. He enters into their world. Willie James Jenkins is an African-American theologian, and he comments on this text. He critiques how Western Christianity uh, often fetishizes these Greek, this Greek culture by focusing on the big names here, Epicureans and Stoics and the Areop Areopagus. 
As a good Jew, Paul is outraged and disturbed by these idols and these idolaters. But instead of turning away from the idolaters, he sees the people and he turns towards them. What's the Holy Spirit reminding us here? God wants Gentiles. God desires those who desire idols. Jenkins writes about the work of God's Spirit here. He said, the point is that that divine desire now enfolds idolaters in hopes that God's body, which is the church of Jesus Christ, will draw them away from the body of the idol. You know, as we see laws and policies being changed in our schools or in our nation, more and more lawmakers and representatives may not share what we may typically believe to be Christian values and beliefs. These individual issues and causes should not be the primary cause for alarm, though. Instead, as Paul saw in Athens, we should be more distressed about what people are putting their hopes in. What realities are people writing for themselves and to hope in that are apart from the living God? It's power and influence? Money? Protection from so-called foreigners? Perhaps our idols may be a little more innocuous and seem beneficial for society. Wise spending of your income and resources. Racial justice. Environmental sustainability. These are all wonderful endeavors, but they can never be ultimate. Maybe our idols start as interests and are indeed enjoyable, but we soon find ourselves beginning to structure our lives around them. We prioritize them over other things. We begin dressing in their colors. We stay up late watching them. We line the streets to celebrate them. We think about how we will fill our time when they're gone. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about, but maybe that could be an idol in your life. We don't have to build buildings and statues of gods and goddesses to have idols. See, Tim Keller, the New York pastor, writes, an idol is behind our loftiest dreams, our scariest nightmares, and our most unyielding emotions. Idols are what we commit our lives to and say that we must have or else. Anything apart from God, no matter how good or well-intentioned, is merely a human creation. It will not hold up ultimately or last for eternity. Idols will fail us and end up controlling us. We may think we are free to do as we wish, but we really aren't free. We end up being controlled by our lofty dreams, or we are crushed when, we fa- when they fail to come through for us. Are we able to see the idols not only in our city and in our nation, but in our very own lives? Are we distressed by these idols that promise us happiness, significance, or even eternity? I invite you to be willing to name what those idols are and not run from them. But even beyond naming them, does it distress you and does it distress what you see around you in the world around us and move you towards empathy and compassion that you would speak and share what leads us to true significance and happiness? Up until now, the story of the early church in Acts as Paul is it's unfolding, Paul would refer significantly to the Old Testament in his preaching because his audience was, was Jewish and he was spending most of his time in synagogues. Those listening shared a common backstory of belief in this one living God 
and belief in Israel's call to be a blessing to the nations. They shared a belief in these common heroes like Moses and Abraham and David. Those names meant something to the Jews that heard it. They shared a moral code and a belief in this coming Messiah who would restore Israel. But now his audience in Athens shares absolutely none of those things. So he begins to draw on other connecting points. Instead of Hebrew and Aramaic, he speaks Greek. Instead of being in a synagogue, he's in a marketplace and before, uh, and before the leading city council known as the Areopagus. Instead of a Jewish storyline, he begins using Greek storylines. Paul used his knowledge of Athens and its culture, not in order to agree with them, but to find points of connection and to direct them to how God made the world and how that offers a different way of viewing the world. In the marketplace, he engages with two groups of people that we're told about. They saw things very differently, not only from Jews, but from also from one, one another. The Epicureans weren't just some hipster joint at Union Market. They, were, they viewed the world as what we can know with our senses. They believed in the existence of gods, but these gods had little interaction with humanity. Gods were just simply a model for how to live. And they didn't believe in the afterlife. And they didn't believe that when you died, your life was accountable before a god. What was most important was living a happy life now. And living a happy life sometimes meant living a just and respectable life because that would help you to live a happier life over the long term. Does that sound familiar? Do you hear hints of that in our friends and neighbors? We see this approach come through in naturalist scientific theory or evolutionary ethics. Then you have this other group called the Stoics who believed in this goddess of righteousness that permeated all of creation. And everyone had access to this goddess of righteousness and justice through law and reason and logic and looking within yourself. Everyone was able to live a good life by connecting with this universal logos that was in every living thing. And upon death in this life, the logos within you would just reunite with the logos around in all of creation. Does that sound familiar to some of your friends and what they believe? It's what comes through in the movie Avatar, this idea of pantheistic view of the divine, of what we are connected to. There's two very different audiences here. And they overhear Paul preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. But he's misunderstood by them. In verse 18, we're told he talks about Jesus and the resurrection. And he's accused of being a babbler. And they think he's lowbrow, spouting off unrefined beliefs. They think he's talking about two individual gods, one named Jesus and one named resurrection. Because in Greek, the word resurrection is anastasis, which is a feminine noun. It comes out in the English name, uh, female name, Anastasia. And so they thought he was talking about two new god gods and goddesses. And so they charge him with preaching foreign gods. And to understand this, this is actually a very serious charge in the Greek world. In fact, Socrates, one of the greatest uh, philosophers of the time, was tried and condemned for preaching uh, to die. He was condemned to die for preaching foreign gods. And this charge is what gets Paul taken from the marketplace to go before the Areopagus. In other words, his speaking of the gospel is initially misunderstood. At our church retreat last weekend, the speaker, Mike Metzger, asked WCF a few challenging questions. How are we, as a community, going to speak to 
those around us who are considered the religious nuns, those who don't identify with any religion, that are our neighbors and our coworkers and perhaps even our family members. We've got to know the stories that inform their ideals and, and their values to speak the gospel effectively. How are we going to communicate the gospel uh, and the reality of Jesus and Jesus' kingdom in ways that are relevant to the concerns and needs of those around us? We need time with them. We need time in their world. We need time to understand what questions are driving our friends and our neighbors. And ultimately, we need to pay attention to the work of God's Spirit that is already working in their lives through the things that they worship, through the things that their hearts are drawn towards. Then we can begin speaking the gospel in their language. And that's how we build gospel capital and begin sharing. When Paul stands before the Areopagus, he begins, People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. He sees, he speaks, and then he begins to share the gospel. He sees what they are worshiping. He speaks in a language that they understand using metaphors and literature that they are familiar with. And then he shares the gospel. He sees that they are very, very religious. He spies out one of their idols in the city that says, to an unknown God. Paul uses their symbolism and language. And there's a, there's a legend behind this idol. You know, at one time in Athens, there was a terrible plague that affected the whole city and people were dying and they were sacrificing to all the different gods that they could uh, think of that they had temples for. And one wise man, but nothing was changing. People were still dying. And so one wise man said, why don't we release a bunch of sheep at the top of Mars Hill? And wherever they stop, that's where we need to sacrifice a sheep. And so they did that. And wherever the sheep stopped, that's where they built this altar to an unknown God. They were searching for meaning. They were searching for relief from suffering. They were searching for a way out of their problems. That's the desire behind this idol, not just the physical idol that existed. But Paul picks up this particular idol not for only spiritual reasons. He's also using it to respond to their accusation that he's preaching foreign gods. In his response and using this example, he's not affirming that their worship of idols is actually worshiping the living God. Instead, he's saying that they can't accuse him of worshiping foreign gods when they don't even know the gods that they're worshiping. Who are the gods foreign to? Verse 24 and 25, he begins to launch his sermon before this council. And I want you to take notice, he never once mentions Jesus' name, but is undeniably focused on Jesus Christ. The sermon speaks of a God who is apart from this world and created this world as opposed to Epicureans who viewed gods as disconnected, and as opposed to Stoics who believed in this pantheistic uh, divinity that permeated all of creation. God is other, and he's creator. And God does not live in temples made by hands or is served by human hands. In verse 26, he references that this one man made all the nations. In one man, he made all the nations. It's a nod to the Stoics in the audience who would find the value of this shared common humanity and sisterhood and brotherhood compelling. Paul, of course, is referring to Adam, the first human, without naming him. In verse 28, he continues and quotes two, two quotes. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
And as some of your poets said, we are his offspring. Paul isn't quoting scripture to them because Jewish scripture isn't seen as a source of authority for this Greek audience. Instead, he quotes pagan writers and poets that would be familiar to his audience. The first quote, in him we live, is likely from a hymn to Zeus, the Greek god. And the second quote comes from the poem Phenomena by a Stoic poet. We are his offspring. Paul is pointing to Jesus without naming his name at all, while linking to beliefs that are held by different members of this audience that is listening to him. Without the backstory that many Jews shared, Paul wisely chooses the backstories of his audience to hint at the reality of Jesus and trusts the Holy Spirit to do the rest of the work in their lives. In verse 31, he circles back to Jesus and the resurrection because that's what brought him before the council in the first place. He's clarifying that Jesus and the resurrection aren't two divinities. It's a statement that God is bringing an end to the times of ignorance. What does that mean? It's in the person and work of Jesus that God makes himself known to the world, meeting their longings and invites a response. And Paul asserts in the resurrection, Paul talks about the resurrection in an environment that flatly denies its possibility. In fact, any idea of bodily resurrection went directly against the charter upon which this council at Areopagus was formed upon. In this scene, Paul uses the resurrection to explain why Jesus is the judge. And he's not saying this because Jesus is like sitting there waiting to crush everyone before him because he's superior and he's God. But what he's saying is in the resurrection, God's new world has now begun. God is setting things right in the world. And with Jesus' resurrection, that is now the beginning point of this new world. Therefore, it is through Jesus' resurrection that everything else will be set right. That's how Jesus is judging the world. You know, at WCF, you'll likely not hear me preach in a way that calls people out as sinners in every single message, even though that's true. It's not because I don't believe in sin or that believe, I don't believe that humans aren't sinful. And it's not because I don't believe that every human will not stand accountable before God for the way we live our one life here on earth. I unashamedly do believe these fundamental tenets of the historic Christian faith. But I think for many of our neighbors and our co-workers and maybe even our family members, they aren't thinking about what to do with their sin. They're not thinking about whether they'll be accountable before God or whether they'll have an afterlife even after they die. Because in many ways, some think like the Epicureans in their pursuit of happiness and their lack of belief in a God to whom they are accountable to. And some probably think a bit like the Stoics, who believe that through the right thinking and through good education, we can just become better people. And when we die, we just reconnect with that sense of divine in the world around us. So, you'll hear the gospel here, sometimes as how Jesus offers the clearest, the clearest way of living, the fullest version of ourselves that doesn't crush us in our own expectations or the expectations that people put upon us. The gospel is the way of Jesus that gives us the clearest vision of, and the greatest means for how to help us live lives, or live lives that will be better for ourselves, 
for our families, and for our creation. That, does, that doesn't lead to more, more divisiveness and more destruction of relationships and of the created order. And I'm hoping that we here can speak in a language that is meaningful to the religious nuns that are our neighbors, that are our co-workers, and that are our friends. We have opportunities to build gospel capital by seeing the idols around us, by speaking the language that is relevant to people, and by sharing the gospel in ways that connect with the longings and the desires of our neighbors, of our coworkers, and of our family members. But we got to be where they're at. We've got to understand what they're reading and what questions that they are asking. So you can start by finding out what they care about. It might be as simple as just inviting, a, instead of sitting down at your break, a coffee break or lunch break, on your phone and surfing YouTube, is invite a fr- neighbor or a coworker for a coffee and find out what they're doing for the weekend because often what they care about most is what they do on the weekend. What gets them going? Then pray for how to connect the gospel of Jesus Christ to those longings. And Maybe you don't even have to name the name of Jesus, although it's a good thing. And, but you can speak about him and reflect his reality in your life. I believe that if we do this, that people in this city will begin hearing about Jesus in a way that changes their lives. And it's in each of our hands that Jesus, God entrusts this incredible message with. So let's do this together, WCF, with God's help and with the Spirit's leading. Amen.